Hello and welcome to Roasted in Black and White Television, the review show. This is where we review episodes from the golden age of British television, which is from the sewage crisis of 1956 to the three-day week of 1974. And the tentpole around which we build this show is, at the moment, the black and white episodes of The Saint, which are going out on Talking Pictures television. And we are approaching and about to wrap up the UK season two of The Saint. We are looking forward to The Gentle Ladies, The Ever-Loving Spouse, and The Saint Sees It Through. As always is my chief expert and analyst, David Newell. Hello, good evening, or afternoon, or morning, depending on which time you're listening. And which time zone you might be listening in, and which season you might be listening. We have just been talking about Christmas shows on the Showcase Edition, and feel free to listen to this podcast at any time of the year, because there will be no more Christmas references. So, Dave, we have three episodes. We have The Gentle Ladies, which we referred to in the last review show when we were looking forward to it. It's set in an English village. Uh, yes. Which... Now, I, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing this right, but it is a real place, isn't it? Which is, is it Bosham or Bosom? It's Bosom. Bosom. That's all oh, that makes it sound even worse and more naughty. I know it's Bosom because my parents used to live near there, ah. uh, about two miles away. And uh, it is a very pretty little place. And they do indeed do a lot of sailing there, which is why the saint has gone down. The saint has gone down to um, to Bosom, which I, I may be pronouncing that incorrectly. I'm, I'm unsure. All the sailing appears to be um, a limpet-like little community, which is clinging to the coast. Uh, and while Simon's down there, wouldn't you know it, his car is involved in uh, an accident. Now, I'm not sure who, who Simon's insurance provider is, but I would consider looking at getting some, possibly some different quote. He's had a fair amount of damage done to his car. Julie Christie run into it. Yeah. And also, he purposefully ran into it in the episode when he realised there was that fake Contessa running the scam. And it was Dawn Adams, if you remember, started off by ramming into the car driven by Julian Glover. He's, he's, he drives around with gay abandon when it comes to his, his Volvo. But in this case, he's, he's entirely innocent. Um, it's a little old lady who lives in the community, accidentally backed into his car. And, and she has got form, hasn't she? Yes, uh, she does have a bit of a reputation as causing accidents and being a bit of a clumsy driver. No one says anything outright about being a women driver or anything like that. But the implication is that she's a bit free and easy when it comes to um, driving. Uh, it turns out that this lady is is part of a small commune um, comprising two other ladies um, who live. Um, They're purportedly sisters, aren't they? Yes, they seem to be sisters and you're not quite sure why, because um, one of them is played, the other one is played by Rennie Houston, who's who's a um, a formidable Scottish lady. And then the other one is the small mouse-like Barbara Mullen, who's also Scottish. And those of you um, may remember as Janet in the 1960s version of Dr. Finley's casebook. And they seem to to share this house. And, and there's something a little off 
you're not quite sure what it is. But then all of a sudden, someone turns up there who um, they they don't like the look of. Um, and he's a bit of a wrong one. And they're worried that um, uh, he seems to be blackmailing them. And um, they are looking at putting a plan in place of, of what to do. And at first, you think there may be um, sort of like a, a Reginald Denham, Edward Percy um, play called uh, Ladies in Retirement uh, about uh, a group of ladies who decide to start offing people. Uh, and you just think maybe we're going down like a dark comedy route um, here. But no, um, Bad Freddy, who's, who's turned up, He's come in making highfalutin demands and at first wants £50. £50 is he out of his mind? Um, and I should point out, all of this is going on during our, our first part of the episode, which is Simon Light. Possibly, except that Simon turns up in Bosom and he's obviously at home in Bosom because mm. he, he likes a bit of sailing. And he's on very good terms with Christine Gregg's character. Guess who? <laughs> Simon, wonderful to see you. Wonderful to see you too. Joe? Hello, sir. Can I have a room? There's always room for you, Mr. Templer. Now, here is some tropes and going against tropes. He does the usual breaking the fourth wall thing. Well, he's setting the scene in Bosom, talking about Canute's daughter and then complaining about someone ramming his car. But then, of course, he happens to be having a weekend off and stumbles upon intrigue. Yes. And that one of his friends is in trouble. Well, you know, she knows someone who might be in trouble, but she's dark haired. In fact, he's on such good terms with Christine Gregg's character. He gets very amorous when she's trying to do some work in an estate agent's on a Saturday morning when it's closed. I have some things I want to catch up on. Oh, you've got time to catch up on some lunch, too? Um, give me five minutes. Well, I must admit that even for five minutes, watching other people work is one of the greatest pleasures of my life. Now, you do have others. Mm-hmm. So do you. Really, you have a very beautiful and desirable mouth. I'll watch that. Or maybe I'll uh, watch the freckle on the tip of your nose. Oh, shit. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's all a bit familiar. Takes a while for Simon to like kick into gear. When Simon does, because they're interrupted, and one of the gentle ladies that comes in because she wants to cash a check for fifty pounds. Yes, right. which all seems uh, very, but, very rushed, doesn't it? Not the kind of thing. But she's a nice old lady, so we'll be able to do that. Because she uh, wants to buy, and I think it's an eighteenth-century commode, and she simply can't wait. <laughs> Christine Gregg's character hasn't got enough money to do it, but Simon can cash the cheque. Ah, Mr Bunce. But just to give people an idea of how much Simon was carrying, because presumably that's not all that's in his wallet. No, no, because he'd leave himself short, wouldn't he? For buying like yeah, he would. Foods. Now, I did a little bit of uh, search on the interweb. And according to inflation figures, £50 in 1964. Would you ha like to hazard a guess, Dave, about how now, much it might be worth? I would say I'm going to take a guess at £280. Well, there were different measures of inflation, obviously. I mean, you could go by gold or by Kit Kats or Mars bars, as some people do. But the figure that I came up with was 973 pounds ouch 
Maybe he just because had to win on the nags. He was minted, and, he's, and obviously he's carrying a lot of dough. And when you think that the Mini was originally meant to be sold for about 99 or £100 pounds or so, something like that, if you're talking about maybe buying half a Mini, then you, you could see that that might be uh, the sort of inflation. But because he gives her the money out of his wallet and he's clearly been to the bank and they're all new. Mm. This leads to a revelation when he's talking to Bad Freddy. Yeah, the so down the boozer. Yeah. Um, and at first, at this point, he seems to be getting to know um, Freddy. Finds him a little bit objectionable, but finds him hugely objectionable when he offers to buy a round of drinks with one of those very same fibres. That he had handed over earlier to the nice little old lady. Begins to think, well, wait a minute. How's that money ended up in this rabscallion's pocket? Oh, oh, oh. Something wrong? Yes, uh, the serial number on your fibre. It's consecutive with the ones in my wallet. Really? Yes, really, and I think that needs a little explaining. Take your hand off my arm! And Simon must be well known in the pub because no one bats an eyelid when he strong arms this guy upstairs mm. for some close questioning. Yes, I, I must admit, a couple of episodes, uh, we do have an idea of Simon's moral code because um, once he cottons on that Bad Freddy is a blackmailer, he describes blackmail as the filthiest crime of them all. I'm talking about blackmail, which I rate as the filthiest crime in the book. And he has absolute zero tolerance um, of this, unless, of course, he is using blackmail in one of his own schemes. That's true. And then we have um, we have one of those bizarre incidents where um, we we have a fight, but in a room that is too small in which to have a fight and a struggle. Um, it's a bit like the one in the trailer home in um, Raising Arizona. When uh, Nicholas Cage and John Goodman are going at one another, and William Forsythe, and you just realise they're fighting in a room that is too small in which to have a fight, because everything gets in the way. But the same honourably agrees to pay for any breakages, providing Fat Freddy or Bad Freddy gets out of town. Yeah, takes it on the arches. But he doesn't, though, does he? No, no. Freddy realises that he's onto something. Um, that he's on to the gentle ladies are a cash cow um, or a cash herd of cash cows. Uh, and he's determined to get his money one way or another. So what he does um, is he looks at them, insist, uh, or he insists on them buying him a house in the village. Nothing much, just a small cottage um, and possibly a car. As, uh, as well, so we'll be able to do have a little bit of a runaround. Now, I should point out at this point, we don't know what the gentle ladies have done. No, Simon thinks he recognises one of them. Yes, um, but he's he's still not clear as to what they've done. So at this point, we don't know whether it's uh, an accidental murder, you know, where someone gets pushed and clonks her head on a fireplace and oh it's murder the police will never understand whether it's one of those whether they are hiding out from someone maybe they're hiding out from someone maybe they you know they have a criminal past but they're hiding out so at this point we still don't know what's going on 
Freddie does leave the hotel, packs his bags, but then moves in with the sisters and has a very simple shopping list when phoned through to the local corner shop, which is mainly booze and fags. As much whiskey as you can eat, thank you. And it is during one of these um, encounters when Freddie gets a little bit too tipsy. And by, by the look of it, he's been drinking too much whiskey and not smoking enough fags to take the edge off. He stumbles down the stairs and breaks his neck, or, or certainly dies anyway. And then in, in one of those marvellously assumptive lines of dialogue, um, the little old ladies think it would be best if they brought in Simon. Who is it? Simon Temple. You better come in, he'll know what to do. Because as they say, well, we've got a body and he'll know what to do. Well, and indeed, he seems to have produced a very elaborate scenario for them, which includes putting on Freddie's shoes and stamping yeah. up and down in the flower bed uh, and then arranging things so it looks like Freddie has decided to burgle the place. The police seem to go along with this. Yeah, tell you what, the local PD at Bosom don't seem to have the more highly professional ethics that Chief Inspector Claude Eustace Teal. Oh, good night, Mr Templer, and thank you very much for your help. Been my pleasure. Good night, Sergeant. Good night, sir. Well, obviously, because Simon's well-known and quite popular down in Bosom, particularly because if you didn't know any better with Simon Templer, you might think he was almost engaged to Christine Drake's character, such as their closeness of relationship. Yeah, there did seem to be a certain legitimacy about it. Yeah, the police seem to buy the, uh, that idea, though they're slightly puzzled about the delivery of the whiskey. But Tremaine from The Champions, who is one of the <laughs> ladies' lawyers, Yes. He's slightly more suspicious about this. And then we have the Poirot-esque reveal reveal. scene. Yeah, the big reveal. Now, it turns out that they are the lavender-scented mob. They are art thieves. This is where you have to listen very carefully because it appears that they stole a work of art, didn't they? Mm -hmm. Then was the insurance paid out. Yeah, twice what it was worth twice what it was worth, and they obviously still had the piece of artwork. And then did they resell it or return it? No, they sold it to a Texan millionaire. Oh, right, yes. Then when he died, it was returned to the National Gallery. Now, this issue may come up (laughs) again in The Saint Sees It Through. Because with the Raphael miniatures. With the Raphael miniatures. Because I would caution any student of art history to use what they've learnt from the saint. <laughs> yeah. Because if you look up a Delacroix cartoon, an Arab praying, I mean, not only do they say it's a cartoon, mm. but they give it a title. Now, Delacroix did do a lot of stuff about Arabs because when the French invaded Algeria, uh, he went along and did a lot of Orientalist sort of stuff. But this particular thing, it doesn't show up on the internet. And the price tag of $300,000, which is equivalent to 2800000 today. That's a lot. That is a lot. A cartoon is a preparatory work. So it's, it's not a full-blown painting, which is even more mysterious because when they stole this cartoon, it was being cleaned in the restorer's room of the National Gallery. I don't think you clean cartoons because... Years ago, I remember going to the National Gallery to see the Leonardo da Vinci cartoon, which wasn't funny, 
but it was very stylish. Well, of course, you know, uh, a sense of humour must have changed over the years. Of course, you know, it has. that's why it's not funny. No, I bet when that Da Vinci cartoon first came out, I bet people were killing themselves. <laughs> you know? I bet, I bet old Da Vinci had an accident when he done it. Yeah. <laughs> So, according to Christie's, unlike his paintings, his figure drawings are now at the bottom end of the market and seem to be anywhere between 12,000 and 20,000 euros. The stealing. Listeners can work out their own exchange rates. Um, and I think this rich Jackson was done and the insurance claim was outrageously inflated. However, the three gentle ladies appear to be incredibly well off. Well, to be able to um, possibly look at affording a blackmailer, a small cottage and a car. And to give away baskets of fruit and checks for the garage mechanics triplets. Oh, right. Charlie Butterworth. Yes. The solicitor is totally gobsmacked and feels obliged to turn them into the authorities, but can be swayed on one condition. Yeah, now, is, is this like a legal loophole if one of them marries marries him? It's it's going to be okay. I don't know whether it's that thing that you can't give evidence against your wife. I'm sure that's not true. Maybe. But anyway, it finishes with, and they lived happily ever after, wedding scene uh, mm -hmm. between two people of, let's say, late middle age. Yeah. But a genuine love match. And he does reassure himself that he hasn't blackmailed her into marrying him but they both had the hots for each other even before this so love conquers all bride and groom kiss and then simon makes a rather suggestive remark to christine greg's character come on let's go and do some of that ourselves and you think oh uh, simon the saints definitely got what he came for I think that's possibly, so far, this is the randiest the saint gets in an episode. Uh, we were talking about lack of seasons. Maybe this is kind of like a sap rising season. It certainly could do. I mean, there's a lot of stuff about healthy complexions. Every time I see you, you're more beautiful than the last time. How do you do it? <laughs> Sailing. Really? On the Solent or in, just off the Sussex coast? Unless you're clotted up in weather wax or something. <laughs> Those sea breezes, well, they might make your skin glow, but then it falls off. Yes. So, yes, some very unconvincing stock footage sailing, plus with some studio cutaways of Simon in a roll neck, heavy fisherman's sweater. Yes, let's talk about the cast. Avis Landon, I think is how you pronounce it. Uh, one point from the studio days, 86 credits in all. Uh, the Saints... The Human Jungle, several single plays, 19 episodes of misleading cases as Florence Haddock, the long-suffering wife of Roy Detrice's character, who had a penchant for litigation. Most of the episodes are believed lost, thanks, oh. BBC. She was in seven episodes of Man at the Top, but her last screen appearance was in 1972's The Adventures of Barry McKenzie. Yeah. That box office success of the early 70s. Big Australian feature, and oddly enough, Barry Humphrey's performance partner in that, I used to work with um, his granddaughter, the Australian actress Bianca Naxon, who was a big star in Heartbreak High and uh, Home and Away, Neighbours. Oh, right. Yeah, um, she was great. Yeah, yeah, she was living over here, and she she started working for our marketing firm. 
And someone in the office said, you know, I've seen her somewhere on telly. Um, and yeah, sure enough, she'd, she'd been in Heartbreak High. Still goes to the reunions. Still gets lots of fan mail. There you go. Probably ideal training for marketing, I would say. Mm. Um, Rene Houston. This is the first of two saints elsewhere. Robin Hood, May Gray, No Hiding Place, Zed Cars, Dr. Fenley's Casebook and Doctor in the House. Uh, talking of Dr. Finley's casebook, it wouldn't have been the same without Barbara Mullen, who was in 191 episodes as housekeeper Janet. This is her only saint, but she'd worked with Roger on two episodes of Ivanhoe. She was in Robin Hood and one episode of American TV juggernaut I Spy. Not quite sure how that worked. Uh, yeah. Starring Robert Culp and Bill Cosby. She does, she does turn up in the stylish British thriller Corridor of Mirrors. She is, spoiler alert, the most unlikely of serial killers. Never have pegged her. Spoiler alert, a bit like Gladys Cooper um, in The Black Cat. Never have tagged her. Never. Never. Well, that's her USP, isn't it? Just talking about I Spy, which starred Robert Culp and Bill Cosby. For obvious reasons, that's unlikely to get shown anywhere, anytime soon. Totes orcs. Anthony Nichols, Two Avengers Points, Two Saints, Man in a Suitcase, Department S, Callan, The Adventurer, Zed Cars, Softly, Softly, Special Branch. Did I forget anything? Oh, yeah, 30 episodes of The Champions as <gasps> Big Boss Tremaine. Timothy Bateson, a Man in a Suitcase, Gideon's Way, Dr. Finley, Newcomers. He played Lucky in the British stage premiere of Waiting for Goddard, which no doubt prepared him for his one appearance in Here Come the Double Deckers. Get on board. He ended this immense screen career in Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. Christina Gregg was a guest in a few things in the early 60s, was very successful as a model, then moved to Canada and founded a company promoting health and beauty for the skin, which I doubt included sailing, as well as charity work, which includes scholarships for Canadian actors to come and work at the Globe in London. Keep them coming, I say, because where would British television be without the Canadians? Yes, we, which we have looked at in previous episodes. And we also flag them up when they appear in credits. Frank Seaman, Two Points, Two Saints, Ten Episodes of Compact, Interpol Calling, Ghost Squad, Danger Man, Arthur Haynes Show, 135 credits in total. Donald Tandy, one point, another Arthur Haynes contributor, two Sergeant Corps, the Troubleshooters, UFO, Colditz, and four episodes of Crime of Passion and 73 episodes of EastEnders. Barry Wilshire, one Avengers, one Sergeant Cork, six newcomers, four episodes of Doctor Who. He wrote 10 episodes of Play School and one Jack and Ori Playhouse. Among the rest of the regular uncredited credits, we've neglected to mention... In the past, Aileen Lewis, who was in 10 Saints, has four Avengers points and was in almost everything on the big and small screen that was made in the UK from the late 40s to the early 1980s, ranging from the Lady Killers to American Werewolf in London. And she lived to the age of 99. And we salute her. Um, and we also started off this conversation by talking about the accident which happens to Simon's car. And we've got our favourite 60s car in the cast as well. Um, with an uncredited appearance as a pub patron by Austin Cooper. <laughs> so I think that wraps it up for the gentle ladies. That was kind of rollicking good fun. And we know that a new trope ought to be added to uh, the Saints. Not only does he not work for the Russians, he thinks that blackmail is the darkest crime in the book. He's going to be very disappointed in 
this next episode, The Everloving Spouse, which has elements of blackmail in it, and in four episodes of series three. So he just can't get away from them. No, no. So he's probably need his blood pressure checked by the middle of series three. (laughs) The Everloving Spouse is set in America. Uh, It is. We are on the streets of San Francisco. Uh, But in this case, we have not got local police officers, Mike Stone or Inspector Steve Keller, um, to investigate uh, any crime. In this case, no, we have the Candy Makers Association, uh, one of their big yearly trade shows, and makes you kind of wonder what used to go on at these, because there appears to be bunny girls there, and there is a function room which has been relabeled as the rowdy room. Yeah, I mean, Simon asks a girl right at the start. And you come here often? Only at convention town. I see. Well, thanks. Excuse me. He politely excuses himself, and you do kind of wonder what her chosen profession is. Yeah, it does seem very freewheeling here. And again, what we have for a short period of time is a little bit Simon Light. You know, the fact that he's in his hotel room relatively early on um, of an evening, just sitting and just having a little bit of a read. But then there's someone sneaking past his window on the fire escape. Who dares to sneak past the room that is occupied by Mr. Simon Temple the same? And what he does, he grabs hold of the person concerned and hauls him into the room. It is at this point we put two and two together because the person who it is is one of the leading candy manufacturers in the US. Yeah, you don't want to say candy manufacturer five times, Dave. Candy manufacturer. Oh, yeah, God, don't. I'm looking into a mirror. Um, That'd be horrible. And it's Barry Jones. Meek, tiny little uh, um, British character actor, um, Barry Jones, who has just appeared to have gone through what is, and we have seen earlier in the same, the old Badger game, where he has been photographed in a compromising situation whilst he's in his Jimmy Jams and a lady is not in his Jimmy Jams or very little else. And he is worried now that he's going to be blackmailed and he has some clues as to who the blackmailer may be. Now, this gets Simon's blood boiling because, as he said in the previous episode, it's the lowest crime of all. And he's determined to do something about it. But maybe that boiling blood doesn't help Simon see straight because to help Barry Jones, what he does is he um, locks him in his room. (laughs) He just leaves him there. Is that health and safety or anything like that? And Simon goes on a little bit of a hunt to try and track down the girl concerned who seems to be working near the rowdy room and was attracting the attention of one of the waiters there who we already know is a little bit of a hothead and then the plot really starts going um because we get a chance to to meet the photographer behind this and who should it be but our old chum david bauer who again yeah again who up until this point has been in about i think about four or five episodes of the saint and and you know usually turns out to be on the wrong side of the law but in this case you know we have him pegged as being the chief villain but then he dies a very mysterious death Um, i think he must have only been available for one day actually he dies you know very unpleasantly in his office body is discovered by simon templar and also um the mysterious bunny girl from the from the picture and then we start to get all 
plotty, twisty, twisty, because at first we just think it's, hey, um, oh, that hot-headed waiter must be the person who's done it. And the San Francisco cops try and sweat it out of him. Barry Jones is worried about his wife um, finding out about this. But then it turns out who's behind all this but Barry Jones's wife, because she's having an affair with Barry Jones's regional manager. Oh, don't you just hate it when that happens? Oh. And just when we think there can't be any more twists and turns, there is one big final reveal. Yes. When the body's being discovered, somebody then tries to shoot Simon Templer and winds up shooting the bunny girl. Yes. And then when... Simon looks out of the back window and sees a figure running down the sort of quaint alleyway that you might normally see in the home counties. Yes. Uh, and not necessarily in San Francisco. So there's a reference on IMDb about how all the phones and the um, electrical outlets are, are British. Yes, there is a lot um, of British phones in this, yes. I'm not quite sure whether used um, British ringtones <laughs> or American ringtones. But, yes, it turns out that initially when the police uh, turn up and find the body and the girls being taken to hospital, um, the police give them the benefit of the doubt. Okay, Temple, you can go now. Don't check out of your hotel. Thanks, Lieutenant. One other thing. Don't meddle, understand? Don't get mixed up in anything and don't look for trouble. Uh, Yes, yeah. Uh, You know, going into an office which has been ransacked where there's a corpse and um, Simon Templer, given his reputation, and the police are a little bit hard-nosed with him. Yeah, they just they just seem to think, oh right, yeah, you you. Um, it's there's a line in the 1960s film Charade when um, Jacques Marin, as the cop investigating the case, asks where Cary Grant and Audrey Hepburn were at the time of the murder of one of the many victims in the film. Um, Audrey Hepburn says. Oh, I was asleep in my hotel room. And Cary Grant says, and I was asleep in my hotel room. And he just goes, okay, I'll let you both go. You're letting us both go. Of course, monsieur. Why would you make up such a ridiculous story? And it's it's a great tropey kind of knowledgeable line. And also it gives the saint the chance to give one of his one-liners in response. I never look for trouble. It's trouble looks for me. Which, to be honest, I think that he also delivered in that Julie Christie episode to the Canadian police. Maybe it's something he just uses in North America. And of course, yes, it's the cheating wife who underestimated her husband, who appears to be the most mild-mannered of psychopaths. You know, I had the most wonderful feeling when I shot Bolton. Sometimes at night, I put myself to sleep, imagining myself in dramatic situations, leading an army or being head of the FBI. And when the dream became reality. Uh, He is. um, uh, Barry Jones, for those of you with with long memories, very famously, uh, was in the Oscar-winning film Seven Days to Noon, where he is the scientist with a conscience but not much of a conscience as he is going to potentially detonate a um, atomic weapon in the heart of London, uh, which makes for a very thrilling, exciting film, by the way. Uh, I think it's Paul Den, um, the screenwriter who picked up the best original story 
for that. But yes, he seems very demure. He's very mousy. Um, we've got the age difference as well. At the time, Barry Jones was 71 and the actress playing his wife is 34. Just think, oh, yes, yeah, so, there's, so there's that. Um, and obviously, he's not supplying the right kind of candy to keep her happy. <laughs> um, the cop investigating the case, Robert Arden, uh, who some of you may remember, spectacularly blowing his brains out at the beginning of uh, Omen 3, the final conflict, or being the cop investigating the case in Orson Welles' mishmash, Mr. R. Cardin. Uh, he's kind of uncertain who to hunt. And, and the, all the emphasis seems to be on this wacky, hot-headed waiter. But then the big reveal is, I know you've mentioned this before, Guy, as an ongoing trope, whereby it's the person who's asked Simon for help who turns out to be the wronger. That is a trope. Within TV series, say, for example, in Murder, She Wrote, it's quite often the biggest name in the supporting cast who is the murderer. Yes, which is why you have to have quite a heavy supporting cast. Yes, yeah. Have any sort of sense of mystery. Yes, the saint happens to be passing by or on holiday and stumbles upon intrigue. Well, yes, the, he encounters a blonde woman about five foot six in her 20s. Yeah. Have we got a new trope as well? Because again, the last line of the piece is the title of the episode. Uh, that indeed is one of the tropes I think we've we've got here. Often the wife of the chief suspect turns out to be the real villain or one of his friends. So the twist on that is it actually turns out that it is the husband, rather like the noble sportsman who turned out to be <laughs> the yeah. attempted murderer. Basically, just don't trust married couples. Don't trust married couples. They're just double trouble. They really are. One of those other tropes, I don't think this is just specific to The Saint. This is specific to a lot of thriller series where two characters interact within a room and some kind of a chord is reached and I'll be seeing you. One of those people leaves. Now, if that person just hung around outside the door just for a couple of minutes, what inevitably happens is the person left in the room then makes a phone call which heavily implicates them in the crime. If you just hung around, so you just go, oh, you go, say if you pop back in, just go, oh, sorry, no, forgot my paper, or, oh, I think I left my phone charger here. Um, you'd catch them midway through an incriminating phone call. And it would speed things up nicely. Yes, it would um, do, yeah. Right, uh, we've mentioned Barry Jones, we've mentioned Robert Arden, uh, Jean Moody, uh, she's American, Four Saints, Danger Man, Troubleshooters, One Human Jungle. Before that, when she was in the States, Dragnet and Perry Mason, to name but two. Jacqueline Ellis, Canadian. Yay! Um, Danger Man, Man of the World, Ghost Squad, quite a few single plays. Crane, five episodes of The Rat Catchers, The First of Two Saints. Softly, Softly, Man in a Suitcase, Barlow at Large. She's Blonde. Care to hazard a guess at her height? Oh, don't five, four, five, five. Higher, higher. Five, six. It's quite possible that she was five, six. She was also one of Jeffrey Bernard's many wives. Oh, right. Okay. I know it's a big field, but... He, what, he, she, he was unable to remember how many at the end. And actually, he's also got some acting credits uh, when I looked him up. Paul Carpenter, Canadian. Yay. 18 episodes of Compact, several single plays. 
he was uncredited as the Invisible Man in three episodes. So you're uncredited and invisible. Could have been anyone. Uh, but sadly, he died at the age of 43 of natural causes in his dressing room at the Vaudeville Theatre in London. So it's you know a great shame uh, and probably would have been in plenty of other stuff uh, had it not been for that. David Bauer, again, two points and several saints. Alexis Canner. Oh, uh, right so- now. Now, allow me now, because we've got some... Oh, go-, go ahead. We've got some gossip. We've got some goss here. Because later on in the 60s, Alexis Canner would work with Roger again in Roger's first big... 60s movie post saint which was cross plot which is a fast-paced comedy action thriller set around london starts off with a great swinging 60s scene in which advertising executive roger moore and the very own troubled don draper of his day is hurtling towards work because he's late for a meeting and he's racing along in a sports car and he pulls up alongside a milk float and takes a bottle of milk to have that pint for breakfast. Um, and then, yeah, it turns out that there's all kinds of shenanigans going on with an assassination plot, but no one will believe poor old Rog. Um, and the only people who do believe him are, of course, the villains. And then Alexis kind of got to know Patrick McGowan because he was in an episode of The Prisoner. And they became big buddies. And Alexis Canner eventually ended up directing a film called Kings and Desperate Men, which is about a group of terrorists who hold hostage in a skyscraper, a radio broadcaster, um, and insist on taking over his broadcast of of the airwaves. Uh, It was very, very minor Canadian film, uh, very limited release. I think you still might be able to track it down somewhere. But... And I can say this with the surety, as it was my subject of my M.A. When I came to write about the film Die Hard, Alexis Canner took the makers to court because he felt it was similar in many ways to his film, Kings and Desperate Men. The case, I don't think it made it to trial. You know, there was no, there was no case to answer because the book it was based on came out late 70s, early 80s anyway. Nothing lasts forever. But yeah, I just saw it's very, very unusual. Good pedigree there of, of again, working with Rog and also connecting with Patrick McGowan. Yeah, I mean, Alexis Canner, he was born in France, but from the age of two, he was raised in Canada. Had several single plays, nine episodes of Softly, Softly, where he played this kind of rather slightly loose beatnik sort of detective constable if i remember rightly with what i assume was a west country accent because i think softly softly was meant to be based in bristol and he was only in it for nine episodes and then he was summarily dismissed from the softly softly team and i'm not quite sure whether that was actually part of the storyline or whether it was something to do off screen in terms with the the litigation aspect i think he may have been a combative character let's put it yes oh that's a that's an excellent description i'm not quite sure whether he's still alive so if you're listening good luck (laughs) Mm. all the best Janet Brands, Brandes, I'm not quite sure. Uh, she's English, single plays, One Step Beyond Vendetta. Max Faulkner, English, The Buccaneers, Sir Lancelot, Ivanhoe, eight episodes of Robin Hood, and therefore probably had his own tights. The Prisoner, The Champions, Randall and Hopkirk, The Persuaders, The Protectors, The Rivals of Sherlock Holmes, 
the Zoo Gang. But of course, that all-important Avengers point in the vital role of Goon in Atari King episode from 1968. Hal Galili, last seen in Sophia as... Um, a couple of weeks ago, yeah. As the hitman. Five Saints, quite a few single plays. Orlando, Department S, Jason King, seven episodes of Reg Varney and one Avengers point. Stuart Nichol, Canadian. He made a Maygray in the same year and lots of other stuff. John Bloomfield, Welsh. 28 episodes credited as actor, including Three Saints, but forged a considerable career as a costume designer. Uh, Bartlett Mullins from Lancashire. Loads of stuff, including Adam Adamant, Danger Man, May Grey Crane, Clough, Dixon, Doc Green, Doctor Who, Cluffy, in 11 episodes of The Likely Lads. I think he's credited here as Bald Man. Oh, right. Okay. Character part. Uh, but you know him when you see him. I've got, is it possible here that there are two John Baileys? This one has an Avengers point, but there's another previously mentioned with four. Or could the Internet Movie Database be wrong? Not to be confused, of course, with the cinematographer John Bailey, who photographed The Big Chill and Cat People, the remake. Hmm. William Baskerville, who I think, well, I always thought was a font, actually. Um <laughs> One saint, one point, uh, a touch of brimstone. That's the one where Mrs. Peel gets dressed up as the Queen of Sin. And if you're going to be in the Avengers, you'd want to be in that one. Absolutely. Bring that thing. Uh, uh, Jack Arrow again, one point, 22 saints. Andrew Andreas, two points, uh, one bidding for the kidnapped Mrs. Peel in an auction, and five saints doing his specialty turn in this one as a waiter. Ah, see? See, if you've got a skill, use it. Now, I don't know, Guy, whether you've looked up um, IMDb, the information pertaining to this episode. Sometimes there's little bits of trivia, and you do sometimes have to wonder about the accuracy. But there's only one item. Um, and for this episode, it claims that, because it was set wholly in America, that this is one of the episodes to make it more palatable to the American audience in which his voice is dubbed. Well, Roger's voice is dubbed. I show, apparently. I find that hard to believe, unless what we saw the other night was the unexpurgated version. I don't. Yes, it's probably, hopefully, struck from the original ITC negative. <laughs> yes, hewn from the very living fibre of celluloid. <laughs> How bizarre. Why would you do that, particularly to Rog, when he's got such a facility with accents? Yeah, um, as proved by our as next we will, episode. <laughs> yes, as we will find out in our next episode, The Saint Sees It Through, which has more dubious art history, and there's quite a bit of exposition at the beginning. Simon, what do you know about the Raphael miniatures? Well, they've quite a history. And I suppose you know it. Yes, I think it was... 1509, Pope Leo X commissioned Raphael to do 12 miniatures of the Apostles. Mm -hmm. After the Pope died, they mysteriously disappeared and turned up in the Peking collection of the Emperor Carl Zung. Then they again disappeared, this time turning up as part of the Russian imperial treasures under the Tsars. You know, Simon, two months ago, those paintings were stolen from the Kremlin. Now, you mentioned this is the last episode in the season. Yeah. And sometimes the tradition is for the last episode of a, a series, sometimes as opposed to a serial, um, it, that it may have a big revelatory moment or it may have a bit of a cliffhanger and you just go, wow, what's going to happen next season? 
Um, and up until this point this season, um, well, just going back over the ones that we've had, despite the fact that there's been some death and murders, you know, there's been some hijinks. You said about gifted farcer elements of um, the David Hedison episode. They were Luella. Going, yeah, there are some lighter episodes and ones in which justice is done. Dare I say it, didn't think I'd find myself, um, but The Saint Sees It Through is very sombre and has an air of melancholy. Yes, it does, really. Partly because it's a kind of lost love episode, one would assume. It is, yeah, because normally the women in, in Simon's life are like disposable hankies or paper cups. Uh, just to be used for that, that 50 minutes episode and not heard of again. This one starts off in Idlewild, which, yes, was a name of an album, I think, by Everything's Up the Girl. But better known now as JFK, isn't it? Yes, he is John F. Kennedy Airport. And he says he's been given a message just to pop along there. And he's a little bit mysterious. All he's been told is to pack his bag. Um, and it appears, um, and couple of episodes down the line as well this easy recruitment into international intrigue is revealed because it's a colleague of his from the art fraud um, squad and you say oh simon would you mind doing this for us yeah okay it's, it's that kind of easiness and he is sent over to hamburg where there seems to be some sort of scam and scheme going on of um some missing Raphael miniatures and they appear to be dribbling through customs and turning up in various places and it, oh sorry go on well yes i mean about the Raphael miniatures we've just mentioned in the gentle ladies that everything you see on the saint that involves art history shouldn't necessarily be taken as gospel once again i fear that the saint script writers may be playing fast and loose with art history, I can't find any reference to miniatures painted by Raphael. And to show you the depth of research that I went into, I scoured Wikipedia for the list of the dimensions of Raphael's paintings and drawings. And none of them appear to be as small as four inches by three or enough to be slipped into a seaman's jacket and smuggled through customs. Been lying to us. That's right. I mean, you know, to suddenly wind up in the hands of a Chinese emperor and then suddenly appear in Moscow in the Tsar's art collection and then to be secretly smuggled out of Moscow. I think that possibly some kind of forgery might have taken place. But anyway. I feel let down. But it would apparently aid international relations hugely if they were discreetly returned to moscow it's uh, i would say the raphael mcguffin well there's yeah there's a there's a fair amount of um, mcguffin and a little bit of dubious psychology and psychiatry going on in in this as well because it appears that one of the people caught up in this is an old flame of Simon's, lily klausner but from the way simon reacts and the way simon interacts there seems to have been perhaps a much more deeper and significant aspect to their relationship. Quite possibly. She's got that kind of hunted form look yes. about her in her character, which must bring out the protective side of Simon. She does seem to be rather insecure and vulnerable. And so the evil psychiatrist 
who played by Joseph First, I'm pretty convinced this character used to be a Nazi. <laughs> yes, and we we've seen him before, um, and uh, he is part of James Bond's franchise. He does turn up in Diamonds Are Forever. Um, he was in again playing someone who was probably a Nazi in <laughs> the same place with fire. Um, yeah, he's up to no good and clearly has some kind of obsessive. Svengali-like control over Lily Klausner. Remembering the plot... There is a nightclub um, where she's singing and she acts as a potential recruiter for rough and ready Jolly Jack tar types um, to be selected to to smuggle these paintings, these miniatures. Like you said, because they're not that big. There's sort of like a gang because there's the Doctor, there's Tanti Ada, who is the club owner, uh, who is also involved in this. And there's also another person who sounds like they may be uh, a bit of a Nazi, is Karl Eberhard. So, yeah, there seems to be this group that are manipulating Lily in some way. It seems to be some kind of psychological duress so that she goes through this recruitment process. So she doesn't really get her hands dirty as much but she's certainly part of the mix. Possibly not aware of quite what's going on. But in the end, there's at least one unsuccessful undercover operation. An undercover sailor gets shot by, is it Carl Eberhard or whatever yes. his name? Yeah. Another one of those Peter Lorre type characters. Yeah, he is. He's he's uh, yeah, he's carrying a deadly weapon and he's carrying a fair bit of timber as well. A little bit of heft. And so, yeah, he seems to be the person to clean up any messes um, when when that suspicion goes on. So rather than the art smuggling department of Interpol United Nations Police Squad <laughs> specials, they just allow Rog to throw himself into this investigation. For a moment, we get a marvellous insight and you just think, wow, I never knew that. Because when he explains what he's going to do, he opens his suitcase, and inside his suitcase is his disguise kit. And what a disguise. I mean, in terms of disguises, it would be a bit like me taking my glasses off and doing nothing else. Is that Dave? No, it can't be, because he's not wearing glasses. <laughs> yes. It's you! Oh. He says, I know the ways of the ungodly, which is actually very charterish Yes, novel yeah, it seems language. It seems certainly from the title of this piece, it seems, you know, this is one of those saint stories that they really got their teeth into. It is, except it didn't involve art smuggling. It involved opium smuggling, uh, <gasps> apparently. Worst kind of criminals, um, either above or below black names. Anyway, the saint points out that it's dark in Tant Aders. It was darker than a Welsh coal miner, which is... <laughs> Yeah, it's a shame he didn't pretend to be a miner because it would have been interesting to hear his accent. Instead, he adopts another disguise. You're new here, aren't you? Yeah, called Paul Svensson. What's the matter, Lily? Don't you recognise me? Well, I didn't know that one of the many languages that Roger could speak was Swedish. Chef. For sure. Yeah, I come from Malmo. That is, if you have any knowledge of the greatest country in the world. As a matter of fact, the Siemens mission sent me over. They said there was fun and free drinking to be had for the asking. Oh? And a sailor friend of mine in New York was telling me that 
There was a spot of cash to be picked up just by brushing a little package past the boys in blue in America. Um, yeah, he passes himself off as a Swedish sailor. He's got a beard. Just to make sure he really does look like a sailor, he's given himself a scar. He's had too much fun with his disguise box. Although, I will point out that whilst, yes, the makeup box enables him to change his visage, where do you get the costume from? I presume there's probably a Chandler's somewhere or a yes, Sailor's Outfitters. Yes, um, charity shop. It, you'd have to choose fairly carefully because otherwise he might have turned up in leather trousers and the, the mop top, it being Hamburg in the early 60s. Yeah, in the early 60s, yeah. Uh, um, have to be a little bit careful that Hamburg rollicking town. So he turns up. Everyone seems to be taken in by his disguise until he pulls a gun on Joseph first, who then says... It's Simon Templer. <laughs> yeah. What are you, you? You're a qualified doctor and you didn't know that. Oh, for goodness sake. You're meant to see through people's problems. Should be able to see through this beard and, and um, God, Arabic. And then all hell kicks off. There's much punch up. There's a real heavy who does all the disposal, oh. including disposing of the guy who disposed of the first guy. <laughs> yes. Then... The police arrive, but what is in the last trope on the list is Simon Templer is saved by some girl at the last minute when he's been very cavalier about his personal security. And it has to be said that Lily Klausner makes the ultimate sacrifice. He does. And Simon seems genuinely distressed and upset by that. Hence why I mentioned before, that they appear to have had much more of a closer, possibly long-term relationship those years previously. Almost like Casablanca. It would have been, except that she did a runner from New York, and yes. we don't know why. Yes, Lily Klausner, played by Margit Saad, I was quite impressed by. She was born in Munich. Uh, most of her credits uh, are in German. She was also in an Edgar Wallace and a third man. I don't know her height. She's obviously blonde. And she would have been in her late 20s when the saint first met her, though she's moved into her 30s now. Joseph First, as we said, been in the saint place with fire. He's got another one to come elsewhere. The Champions, Callan, Doomwatch, Persuaders, Doctor Who, The Baron, a baddie in Sergeant Cork and one Maigret. Elspeth March, her second saint. One Step Beyond, Francis Drake, Softly, Softly. Uh, Guy Dehi, Dehi, uh, it's spelt D-E-G-H-Y. I'm not sure how that's pronounced. No, I, I apologise, but I'm, I'm doing my best. Second of Four Saints, Tours Inspector Kleinhaus of the Swiss Police. Um, plenty of Golden Age shows and beyond, but one vital Avengers point. Larry Cross, Canadian. Yay. Also has one Avengers point, uh, a black and white Mrs. Peel. Elsewhere, Man in a Suitcase, Callan, Troubleshooters, few single plays, Budgie and the Rivals of Sherlock Holmes. Now, Carl During played a lot of Germans in his time, which is only fair as he came from Munich. He possibly had his own steel-rimmed glasses. Um, <laughs> 128 credits ranging from Mr. Pastry to Jason King and Quiller. Last appeared in the year 2000. One of those credits was an Ian Hendry episode of The Avengers called Dead of Winter. Would you like to guess what the plot is of that, Dave? Oh, I don't know. Um, we've talked earlier about um, Christmas-themed episodes. Is it about people getting 
caught in a snowstorm? No. Steed and Keel confront a group of British fascists after discovering a Nazi war criminal frozen in a cryogenic experiment. That was going to be my second guess. Yeah. And to be fair, it's something very similar appears, though not by the same writer, in the pilot of the new Avengers. Oh, right. Okay. And the film The Frozen Dead. Again, with Nazis on ice. (laughs) Yeah, cryogenics was actually a fairly common device in adventure TV. Because we Uh, all know that's where Walt Disney's head is. But when they wake it up, what would he say about the way his company has gone? (gasps) Um, It'd die of shock. Graham Bruce has one point in a Kathy Gale episode. Karen Gardner cameos in a host of shows. May Grey, Danger Man, Gideon's Way, Crossroads, The Champions, Four Saints, Department Deaths, Monty Python. But the pinnacle of her career must have been in the Avengers episode, Death Dispatch, where she played, and Ken would appreciate this, Bikini Girl. Yay! Bernard Barnsley has two points. And he was in your favourite, Plague of Zombies, of the zombies. Brilliant. Uh, Doctor Who, Doom Watch, Upstairs, Downstairs, Billy Dean, 10 episodes of The Saints and a plethora of other shows, Ernest Fenimore, 8 Saints, 2 Avengers Points and many other uncredited roles, Jim Tyson, 1 Saint, 1 Avengers Point, plenty of other appearances. But we have to celebrate Gordon Stern, who lived to the age of 94, which is more than you can say for his character here, a very long career and a huge range, Interpol Calling, 4 Just Men, Charlie Drake and Hancock's Half Hour, several single plays, Maygray, The Plane Makers, Sergeant Cork, The Prisoner, UFO, Little Britain. His last screen credit was in a short in 2009. We salute you, sir. Well done. That's The Saint Sees It Through. As you said, it's the kind of a melancholy end to the British season two and the last in the production block of 39 episodes which then goes on to such success in U.S. syndication, leads to more episodes of The Saints and eventually to colour networking. The holy grail of syndicated TV. Not prime time, though. (laughs) There's only one series from Britain that's ever done that. Is that Stingray? No, it's one that has a lot of points. Oh, right, yeah, Yeah. yeah, it's it's that superhero group. It? Yeah, it's um, Chapamelon a botte de queer. There we as go. They say in France. City gent and fighting lady. <laughs> yes, so that's the end of that. Season three has already started, if you're watching Talking Pictures television, with the Miracle Tea Party. But as it's kind of an end of year feel to it, it seems appropriate to end with season two here. And we'll start season three after Christmas, that's the second and last reference to the season, and that will follow shortly, just before the new year, when we'll be able to include the second episode and ponder on whether they've made any radical changes. Yes, yeah. Um, any new staff come in? Because uh, we've, you know, familiar to seeing all those similar names in the end credits. Will there be a change of personnel? Will there be a clearing? Of house, I don't know. I think the answer might be no, because okay. it's not it's <laughs> not the Avengers, which had several radical reboots, if you go into the production history of it. And uh, it's quite a miracle that it survived all of that. But the Saint and Rog sails on unperturbed into British season three, which is going to be 
something like 27 episodes and i think there's another 12 and uh then we burst into color in season five to all our listeners hope you have a good time of year whatever that time of year it is when you're listening this has been rose tinted black and white television i'm guy morgan my expert co-host is david newell who has borne his snuffles remarkably well sterling performance i would say and hopefully be recovered when we deliver more drivel to you again reconvene i thank you